Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, I'll talk with animal behavior expert Temple Grandin. She's in Iowa to talk about pets. But first, the movie The Whale tells the story of Charlie. He's an online writing instructor who is severely obese. Without intervention, it's clear that he only has a short time to live. Within the limitations of the life he has created for himself, he tries to use his time to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter. Charlie is played by actor Brendan Fraser, and the movie, directed by Darren Aronofsky, has received a great deal of attention, critical acclaim, and recognition. It is nominated for three Academy Awards. The film is based on a play by the same name, first produced in 2012 and written by Samuel D. Hunter. He also wrote the screenplay for the film. Hunter is a prolific playwright who graduated from the Iowa Playwrights Workshop in 2007. He received a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2014 and many other awards through the years. The success of this film has brought him a new level of stardom. When receiving the Critics' Choice Award for Best Actor, Brendan Fraser called Hunter his lighthouse. And Samuel D. Hunter is with me now. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. And how how cool is it that I'm sharing a bill with Temple Grandin? Yep. My God, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, not bad. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you, I know that The Whale is not autobiographical, but you have said that this story is is extremely personal to you and it comes from a very vulnerable place. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's a lot of points of connection uh, that I had to the material. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, when I so in the the play and in the movie, the main character is uh, an essay writing teacher, and uh, he teaches college freshmen over the internet. And I, at the time, was teaching essay writing to college freshmen. I was teaching at Rutgers, uh, so really, I, I started this thinking like I want to write a play about an expository writing teacher, in part because I, at one point in the semester when I was teaching, this was like 2000 nine, I think. And, and I got a little desperate because it just started to feel like the the work that I was asking for felt anathema to my work as a playwright, which, you know, is deeply personal and and, and uh, subjective, and I, and I guess in certain ways. But I was, you know, training these kids to write objectively and take themselves out, out of it and depersonalize it. And at a certain point in the semester, I, I got kind of frustrated and I was like, you know what, just write me something honest. Like, let's just start with something you actually believe. Tell me something, you know, true. And then we'll we'll go from there. And I had a student uh, write me a line that ended up in the play that uh, is in the movie as well, which was, I think I need to accept that my life isn't going to be very exciting. And it was this kind of bracing moment of honesty, uh, which led me to think, like, can I write a play about an expository writing teacher um, and I had a few false starts. Uh, I was writing a play that bears no resemblance to what the whale has eventually become. Um, but at a certain point I was, you know, maybe I needed to take my own assignment here. And so I started accessing some more personal stuff about, um, you know, growing up gay in, in Idaho. Uh, and I attended a very, uh, very religious school. I was outed. Um, and for years after that, I struggled with depression. And in me personally, that manifested as self-medication with food. Uh, and, I, you know, I was eventually able to, with the support of, you know, 
the people around me and my family, I was able to find my way out of that. Um, but, but I know what that feels like and I know what it is to like live in the world with a bigger body. And I also know the shock of living in the world with a bigger body and then losing that weight and seeing how drastically different the world related to me after that. Um, so that led me to, you know, this story, which, um, you know, has, has no direct correspondence to me autobiographically, but is kind of an act of autofiction in certain ways, like many of my other plays are, to be honest. Well, and for people who haven't seen the film or seen the play, Charlie is gay. He was married to a woman. He left his wife for a man that he fell in love with. That means that he also left his daughter when she was only eight years old. And so that's that's the daughter that he's desperately trying to reconnect with. He has lost his partner. And obviously that grief is something that is with him every day of his life. I'm, I'm curious, you talk about creating this character who was teaching online classes back in 2012, which was not that normal. And now, of course, it's very, very normal <laughs> to, to be teaching college classes from your living room. I mean, did you feel like that was a stretch when you created the play? Oh, it was very much a stretch. I mean, I, I only knew about it because uh, Rutgers, where I taught, had just started offering online courses. And I nearly taught one because, you know, I lived in New York City, so it was kind of a commute for me. But I didn't end up, for some reason, I don't remember now, I didn't end up teaching it. But uh, no, it was very much a novelty. Uh, so it's very strange how prevalent <laughs> that is that is now become. I mean, you know, we when Darren and I started talking about this, you know, that was 10 years ago. And we had uh, a reading of the screenplay uh, with Brendan probably two weeks before lockdown. Mm. So even up until then, like this online teaching thing was still, you know, relatively novel. But now, to your point, it's kind of de rigueur. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the the, the movie, I, I think, pretty clearly takes place in 2016 or maybe late 2015, mm. uh, because we see news reports throughout the film, and, and they're That's all right. about uh, the election and the Republican primary race that, that Donald Trump yeah, was part yeah. of. Yeah, we, so we eventually landed on that because we kind of knew at a certain point, I mean, you know, if we're going to tell this story in 2022, 2023, setting it in the year which I first wrote a draft, 2009, just felt like a random choice a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like why that period? And so it was kind of up for grabs because we didn't want to set it in present day because we shot this in the middle of the pandemic and, you know, one of the characters is a healthcare worker. And so the, you know, the pandemic would have factored into the storytelling in in unhelpful ways. Uh, so we landed on 2016. And what I really love about it is, uh, you know, all five of these characters are kind of on the cliff's edge of something. Um, and, and it's a very specific story told in this two bedroom apartment. But when we hear this kind of like Idaho super Tuesday stuff going on, it reminds you that, that there's this larger country that is also kind of on the cliff's edge of major change. Um, and I love how in that way it kind of blasts out of the apartment and, and kind of lands in a larger landscape. Right. And connects to the real world in a moment that I think all of us remember clearly because it really yeah. was that uh, a major moment for everyone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The cusp of major change. Charlie has had 
terrible things happen to him, terrible losses. And in so many ways, he has given up on life. I mean, he is literally eating himself to death. He is choosing not to have any kind of medical intervention. He has congestive heart failure. His blood pressure rate is, you know, through the roof. But he also really, really believes in the goodness of humanity. And here's here's just a very, very brief quote from the film. Here's Charlie speaking. Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? love the way that Brendan delivers that line. Yeah, it's really, it's, that was, for me, that was the best moment in the whole film. And I'm I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. So here's this man who loves people and believes in people. And yet he has entirely given up in so many ways. How do you think about this character? I think that, you know, this is something that's not uncommon. I mean, something that people, I mean, it manifests in Charlie in a very specific way, but I think the condition of people bestowing generosity and love on other people, but being chronically incapable of bestowing that same love and generosity on themselves, I mean, I think that's something that most people deal with. I think we're all harder, generally speaking, we tend to be harder on ourselves than other people. At least I feel that way. Um, and, and I also feel like if I was going to tell this story that, that is, uh, in, you know, it's a dark landscape. It's, 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 a, you know, and it's, it's, it's also like, I'm not interested in sort of, uh, the traditional hero narrative of like suffering always leads to redemption or, you know, you, if you try hard enough, you win. Like I, cause I, I don't think that corresponds to real life a lot of the time. Sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I, but in writing this, I, I really, at the very beginning, I was like, he has to be like a lighthouse in a, in a dark, dark sea. Um, because that's, I, I think like ultimately, um, I made a decision early on that I didn't want to be a cynical writer. Um, and I actually find cynical writing kind of vapid, if I'm being really honest. I, th- I think cynicism easily masquerades as intelligence. It easily masquerades as dry sophistication. But I just personally think it's easy and kind of intellectually bankrupt. And the and harder oppose, thing... Oppose some of the time or maybe a lot of the time. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's you know, the hard thing is having faith in other people. That's a really difficult project because human beings are flawed and life is difficult. Um, but I think that's like a worthy endeavor, especially now that I have a five-year-old. I mean, it's like, I have to believe that people are amazing, you know? And I, and I think when I did write that line, the one you played that kind of awkward double negative, do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? That kind of became like, oh, this is like the, if I could print this out on a banner and hang it over my computer as I'm writing this play, like that's, you know, like, like that's kind of the, the core of the play is this, uh, this this brazen act of humanism, you know, um, in faith in other people. And I think that's something that, that Brendan really exemplifies in his performance. You know, it's he, he, from the very beginning when we did that reading in a little theater in the East Village right before the pandemic hit, it was just so evident that um, Brendan was able to hold 
that kind of deep joy and deep despair in the same moment. Um, because to me, that's real life, you know, like, like they, they do go hand in hand. They're not they're not polar opposites all the time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with Samuel D. Hunter. He wrote the screenplay for the movie The Whale, and he also wrote the play that inspired the movie The Whale. The Whale has been nominated for three Academy Awards and has received many other awards. And we will continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest this hour is Samuel D. Hunter. He wrote a play that was first produced back in 2012 called The Whale. It is now a movie that has been receiving a lot of attention and critical acclaim and also is nominated for three different Academy Awards. The, pl- the movie follows Charlie, who is an online writing instructor. He is severely obese and without intervention, he's going to die within a number of days. He decides to use what remains of his life to try to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter. And Charlie, of course, is played by the actor Brendan Fraser, the movie directed by Darren Aronofsky. And I, I want to talk, um, before we move on, I, I want to talk about the character, Liz. You mentioned that there's a healthcare, you know, worker in the play. And... This is Charlie's friend, Liz, who is taking care of him, who is urging him to go to the hospital, urging him to get intervention. But she also respects his choice not to seek medical care, not to get intervention. How do you think about that relationship between those two people? Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to draw a relationship that that was... Uh, incredibly complex. I mean, I think that like there's so much love between them. And as we, you know, I don't, not to give too much away if people haven't seen the movie, but you know, there's a, there's a very complicated history between the two of them and they share a very deep trauma. Uh, it's the thing that's kind of glued them together, but it's become a codependent relationship over the years too. Um, so, so amidst the love, there's also, you know, a lot of caustic, uh, behavior. I mean, there, I remember one day on set, Hong Chow, who plays Liz, who's nominated for for an Oscar and deserves it. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's amazing brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, one of the best actors I've ever worked with. And uh, I remember I, I was on set the entire time for the movie, which was great and very uncommon for a screenwriter. But you know, so I worked very closely with Darren and Brendan and all the actors. And I remember one day Hong came to us uh, when we were doing one of the scenes where um, she gets angry at Charlie. And uh, she was like, I think I want to hit him. 
And Darren and I both looked at each other kind of horrified, like, what? Like, you know, and, and, but we were like, well, I, I guess try it if Brendan's okay with that. And she did it. And of course, that's the take that ended up in the movie because it's, because it's exactly right. There's so much complicated history and complicated love uh, in this relationship, you know. Well, and I, I kept thinking about, you know, Charlie, he's hurting himself. And he seems to feel like he's only hurting himself, but he is also hurting Liz so badly. And here is this very kind, very loving man who can't see that. Does he know that he's hurting her as badly as he is? I think on some levels he does, but it's just become the behavior and the patterns have become so kind of etched in stone over the years that they've become kind of unescapable. I mean, I think there's a reason that he is constantly apologizing to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, he, I, it's, it's almost like every other line he says to Liz is, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but it's not really until I think the end of the film that he's, you know, part of the, the process of the film is, yes, his project to reconnect with his daughter, but in that, I think he has to face some very dark personal truths by by the end of the film, uh, and one of them I think is this is this very complex relationship that he has with Liz that that like I said is rooted in so much trauma. I, I talked about the fact that this the movie takes place in in slightly a different time than the play. How else is it different from the play? Well, it's structurally identical to the to the play, which is really a credit to to Darren. I mean, I, you know, early on, I remember thinking, like, uh, is he going to want me to open this up in the traditional way and, like, add characters, add settings, add flashbacks, maybe. Go outside. And every time I thought, <laughs> go outside. <laughs> we did do one day of exteriors, uh, but uh, uh, on the porch. Um, but uh, But every time I thought about that, I was like, I don't understand what this is anymore. I think I have other plays that could be opened up in that traditional way. Um, but this one is really like, we don't want to leave this person. Like, this is what this story is, is like communing with this human being, this very complicated human being. And so very early on, Darren and I made the decision to keep it in the apartment, which was the right decision, but also the very complicated decision. Um, and I think at a certain point, Darren kind of embraced it as a play on film in, you know, the tradition of like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or Streetcar or something like that. Um, but that being said, there's a lot of dialogue that I got rid of, and there's a lot of um, a lot of silent scenes in the movie and silent storytelling that that doesn't happen in the play. Like one of the big additions that I made to the script is the this second bedroom uh, in his apartment, which is this kind of uh, preserved, you know, archaeology of his past with his former lover, uh, with his dead lover. Um, that at one point, you know, he like opens up the door and he sees it and kind of breathes it in. It's like him entering his past life. Uh, and that's all new. And that, that, you know, in particular, that, that kind of took the place of a big monologue in the play where that he delivers to Thomas about, uh, about Alan, his partner. So there was a lot of things like that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a runner of like a pizza guy coming over that's not in the play, uh, that I added very early on. And, and so there's a lot of different elements, but it does retain uh, the original shape of the play. The movie has been criticized by people who feel that the portrayal of a man who's morbidly obese is insensitive, 
insulting or a caricature. I mean, uh, Roxanne Gay wrote in the New York Times that, quote, it was crystal clear that Mr. Hunter and Mr. Aronofsky considered fatness to be the ultimate human failure, something despicable to be avoided at all costs. You and I have been talking and, and from what you have said, I mean, clearly that's not the way that you feel. But how do you respond to that criticism? It's really tough. I mean, I, I think part of it is that like the history of cinema as it relates to portraying obesity is really complicated. Uh, you know, it's it's the tradition has been to like put people in entirely unrealistic suits in order to make them kind of the butt of the joke mm-hmm. or to dehumanize them. But um, uh, I don't know. I think it takes a a pretty a, a pretty aggressive misread of the film to come away thinking that this is anything but a call for compassion and empathy. Um, I mean, like I said before, like I wrote it from a very personal place. And I mean, as a storyteller, I just have to focus on the character and and the story itself. I mean, this is not, you know, this is not a story about obesity. You know what I mean? Like that is one element of this man's life. Like he is an educator. He's a father. He's you know, person with a lot of trauma in his life. He's, you know, he, there's elements of religion. And I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. There's, he's, he's a teacher, he's a man of letters, you know? Um, so I think like reducing this down to like, this is what you're saying about obesity is, is, I, I don't know. It, I mean, it's, I, I understand it. And I, and I think like, uh, you know, if people come to the movie, with a particular lens, then it's hard for me to, you know, it's it really the invitation, the movie is just an invitation to spend time with this guy. And I think if you meet that invitation with a furrowed brow, then we're kind of at an impasse, unfortunately. I found myself wondering if it's, if one of the problem, maybe not a problem, I'm not trying to say it's a problem, but if, if one of the reasons that people have responded in that way is because the prosthetics are so incredibly realistic. I mean, in in the play, you know that this is a costume and a metaphor in so many ways. In the movie, it looks very real. It is. I mean, it's incredible work. I mean, you know, there's a reason reason that Adrian got nominated for an Oscar for hair and makeup. I mean, uh, I mean, and I also think that it's that, you know, I, I made reference to, you know, the the use of these kinds of prosthetics in the past that have been entirely unrealistic, that don't obey the laws of gravity. Um, but this is not that. This is kind of the diametric opposite of that. There was so much care put into it. You know, we worked very closely with the Obesity Action Coalition, which is this um, online advocacy group that's nationwide. Uh, and, you know, I've intersected with them many times. Brendan talked with dozens of people who have experience with that type of weight gain, some people who had undergone bariatric surgery. Um, you know, we had consultants. Like, like the, the level of care uh, put into the realism of this, you know, to your point, maybe uh, triggers some people. But I think that that's telling if you bring that to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think that's kind of on you if you bring that kind of lens to it. Although I could imagine for people who struggle with this to any degree, it could be a very painful experience to watch this film. It can, yeah. Yeah, and and also, like, I think redemptive, too. Like, Darren actually showed me a message the other day from somebody who had seen the film and 
and was thanking Darren because I'm finally ma- this person said I'm finally making the decision to call my doctor and schedule bariatric surgery. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 I think if you meet the story where it lies, I, I think you'll you'll see that it's a story about compassion and human dignity and and worth. I'm talking with Samuel D. Hunter. He is a playwright and the screenwriter for The Whale, which is based on one of his plays. There is a father-daughter relationship in The Whale that is very complicated. And I found myself thinking about how often when I return to a piece of literature that I love, it, it often changes for me because my life has changed. And you were not a father when you wrote this play. You yeah. are a father now. Does that change it for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, it definitely changed in, over the last few years working on this script. I mean, the idea of not being with your kid after they turn eight, uh, I mean, is so much that carries so much more emotional significance for me personally now. Yeah. Uh, and I think also, like, it complicates the decision that, yes, Charlie, you know, when he uh, made the decision to sort of be honest with himself and say, I'm in love with this man, um, that was a very complicated decision. And And, yes, Mary, his wife, kept him away from their daughter, but... You know, as Mary points out in the in the film, which is an addition to the film, it's not in the play, like, I forget what the line is, but it was like, you were more than happy to go play house for a little while without us. And I think that really stings because I think there's maybe like a little bit of truth in that. And that's kind of a dark choice that Charlie has to own up to, which he, he does in the movie in a much more significant way that he does in the play. There is in the film uh, a lovely little connection to Iowa. One of the characters is from Waterloo, Iowa. Um, And of course, you have a a very strong and lovely connection with Iowa. You grew up in Idaho and and you went to NYU, but you came to the University of Iowa for the playwright workshop. So was was Iowa in the play or was that added for the movie? It was in the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely in the play. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> partly because I just wanted the line, uh, I forget what the exact line was, but it's like, you're, you're from Iowa and you came, came to Idaho yeah. on your mission, you know, <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, no, I just, uh, you know, I was not that long out of Iowa city when I started working on the whale. I was, you know, two years, I think after, cause I left in 07 and I started writing the play in 09. Um, so no, it, it looms very large in my imagination. It's where I met my husband, you know? I mean, it's like, uh, he was in the dramaturgy program. I was in the playwriting program. Um, and you know, we fell in love in Iowa city. And so, so like Iowa looms very large in my heart. Well, and, and as you know, once you spend any time in Iowa, you are an honorary Iowan forever, particularly if you do something really good. <laughs> if you get famous, we, we definitely claim you from now until the rest of it. time. So, yes. <laughs> do you still have connections with the university? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, we're, we're making plans. My husband and I are making plans to come out there to work with the graduate playwrights in just a few weeks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've been back. Uh, John, my husband, has been back more than I have, but I've been back at least twice, maybe not even three times, um, to work with the the MFA students. I love it. I, I, any chance I can get to, to go back there, we, we take it. And this time, the first time we get to take our daughter out there, which is going to be really fun. Nice, nice. Well, thinking about that time at the University of Iowa, I mean, of 
course, the, the writer's workshop is world famous. I think probably people know a lot less about the playwright portion of, right. <laughs> of the workshop. <laughs> but uh, you have written about how it was was such a remarkable experience, so different from what you felt like you could get in, in a big city experience. What do you feel made that that program so powerful for you? I think there's a few different things. I think, you know, I, going to NYU, which is such a different school, I, I actually got into NYU grad as well, but I chose to go to Iowa. Um, and uh, I'm so glad I did just because, like, you know, you don't have this kind of army of undergraduate uh, artists who will, like, gladly be in your play. Uh, and, and you know, these big, beautiful theaters that you can see these, you know, proper productions of your plays. I mean, it, it, there's very few programs, I think, that that give you... I think I had three full productions wow. during my, my time there. I mean, you learn so much about what a play is on stage, you know, because it's one thing to write a play and hear a reading, but it's, it's something entirely different to see it produced. So when you, when you have the opportunity to see them in these big, full, lavish productions, it's so invaluable. And also, I, I just think that, like, you know, one of the great things about Iowa for me was this this constant... Uh, this constant influx of guest artists coming in. And what was great is like, you know, they would be flying in from LA or New York or whatever, and they would land in Iowa City and they would have no agenda because they were just like in Iowa City, they had never been there before. And so you could show them around, you would have meals with them. You know, these were like Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights that you were like driving around Iowa City and having a beer with. Um, And you just don't get that experience in a larger city where they just, they come from their house on the Upper West Side, they do a session with you and then they go home. Uh, so, I mean, I just had such deep relationships with so many exciting artists who were filtering uh, filtering through town. It was, it was a really special time. So you're planning on, on coming back to Iowa City in early March, and then you have something else going on in March. Um, oh, yes, it's the Academy Awards. So are you going, are you going straight from, from Iowa City to Hollywood? I, I don't I actually it's unclear if I'm going to be able to go to the Oscars. Oh no. Uh, I they're yeah, yeah, they're working on it. Um but but we'll see. There's there's uh, a limited allotment of tickets, so um I so we'll see. I think that the screenwriter go. would get to go, but <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. So uh we only have about 30 seconds left, but what's next for you? Uh, I'm in rehearsals for a play right now. Actually, we just started previews last night. Uh, it's a play that's kind of, I wrote it uh, 12 years ago, like The Whale. I kind of wrote it on top of The Whale. It's kind of, almost a companion piece to The Whale. But uh, if anybody finds themselves in New York, it's called A Bright New Boise. And it's at Signature Theater in Manhattan on 42nd Street. And we uh, run through March 12th, maybe longer. All right. Well, Sam Hunter, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Samuel D. Hunter is a playwright and the screenwriter for The Whale, which is based on one of his plays. The Whale has been nominated for three Academy Awards and many other awards throughout this awards season. Coming up in just a moment, I'll be talking about pets with Temple Grandin. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. When Temple Grandin published her memoir, Thinking in Pictures, My Life with Autism in 1995, it was the beginning of a revolution in understanding. By giving readers a window into how her remarkable mind works, she began to open the minds of millions. Her unique way of thinking and her study of animal behavior also made it possible for her to transform the livestock industry in important ways. She is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, and her most recent book is Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. She's in Ames at Iowa State University today, and this evening she'll be speaking in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union at 7 p.m. Tonight's lecture is titled, Let's Talk About Pets. And she is with me now, Temple Grandin. It is lovely to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. You have shared many times that you were in your 20s before you really understood that the way that you think your visual thinking is different from how many humans think. Tell me again, I, again, I know you've, you've talked about it often, but tell me about that revelation. Well, I thought everybody thought in pictures. See, everything I think about is a picture. If I'm thinking about going to the grocery store, I'm seeing my grocery store and seeing the apples and other things I'm going to buy there. And I did not know that other people thought in words until I was in my late 30s. Mm. And being a visual thinker, actually the correct scientific name is object visualizer, has helped me with animals. Because animals live in a sensory-based world, not a word-based world. You know, what is the dog seeing? What is it smelling? They have smelling that's 100 times more powerful than ours. It's sensory-based, not word-based. But it was a shock to me when I found out that some people also think verbally. And the way I found that out is I I was at a meeting and I talked to a speech therapist and I said, tell me how you think about church steeples. And she just got these vague pointy lines where if you say that to me, I start seeing different churches around town like a bunch of PowerPoint slides. Oh wow! And only the extreme visualizers do that. Humans are so language oriented. Our culture is so language oriented. And uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very verbal thinker myself. So when you're talking about this, I, I would have vague pointy lines as well. Um, yeah. But okay. so for so many people that that focus on language, do you think that's part of why so many humans have found it easy to really dismiss the minds of other species. Well, and there's different kinds of minds and people. And in the my book titled Visual Thinking, I discuss object visualization. There's scientific research. That's me. We're good at animals, mechanics, and art. That's the stuff we're good at. Then you have your visual spatial mathematicians, chemistry, data science, computers, physics. And then you have your verbal thinkers. And lots of people are mixtures of the different kinds of thinking. But I'm, you know, have autism. I'm a, I'm in a very extreme object visualizer who absolutely can't do algebra. And the point I'm trying to get across in this book is that we need the different minds. And in visual thinking, I have a chapter at the end on animal consciousness. And I find it very difficult to understand how somebody could say a dog wasn't conscious. But then as I think about verbal thinking, 
if all of your thinking was in words, you might have a hard time understanding how a dog could think. But that's really straightforward to me because it can think in smells, it can think in pictures, and it can associate these things together. So some of that session gets down to visual thinking versus word-based thinking. Well, and and as I was saying, I mean, people who are so focused on language have been able to dismiss the minds of of animals, our fellow animals. But you're also saying that that has allowed many to dismiss the minds of people who think differently. Well, we need our visual thinkers. We need our visual thinkers to fix things, repair things. I've worked for years on designing equipment in the meat industry. And I'm, another reason why I wrote the book on visual thinking is that we're losing skills. Like right now, if you want to build a poultry plant, you're going to get all the equipment from Holland because we don't make it anymore. We're paying for taking out the shop class. They used to say, well, the stupid kids take shop. Let me tell you, it's a different kind of intelligence. And there's another thing that we don't make, the state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine. I'm not talking potato chips here. Electronic chips. No, you need us visual thinkers. We're the clever engineering department. And then we need our mathematicians. All the computer stuff we're doing right now, that's done by the mathematical minds. That's another kind of specialized thinking. There used to be so much more hands-on learning in education. It's something that, that we have given up in so many ways. I think it was one of the worst things the schools ever did. I had a student in my class who had never measured anything. Um, kids are totally removed from the world of the practical. I have another little book called Calling All Minds. It's my kids' projects book. I spent hours as a kid tinkering with parachutes and kites. When I did a book signing for that book four years ago, 20 to 30% of the people, of the children, in outside of Denver had never made a paper airplane. Well, and I think doing these kind of things also helps give people common sense. You hear about we don't have common sense anymore. I think common sense is visual thinking because when you think in common sense, you see a risk. So if there's some grapes on the floor in the supermarket, you clean it up because you can see somebody slipping on it. I think about how... Um that kind of hands-on learning is something that a lot of parents will do with their children or, or something we'll do with kids in preschool, but it gets lost as kids get older. And that also makes me think that even those early experiences are something that it's a privilege for kids to have because their parents have the, or the people, the adults in their life have the time and the means to make that happen. So there's a divide there as well that maybe children of privilege do get more of those experiences. Well, I've worked for 50 years. I've been 50 years now in the industry. And for 25 years, I spent time out on big, huge, gigantic construction departments. And I worked with people where a single welding class enabled them to start a huge, big metal fabrication shop where they were inventing equipment, inventing and patenting equipment. And those people are retired now. They're not getting replaced. They took a single welding class in high school. Some of them came out of very modest circumstances. That's why we need these classes. It's a different kind of problem solving. It's not like verbal thinking, and it's not like mathematical thinking. You just see how a mechanical device works. We need people to fix things. Check out the gray hair on the people fixing escalators and elevators. They're getting older and older. And I've been on more elevators recently that have stuff wrong with them, like uh, skipping a floor, for example. Big hotel in Kansas City just that last fall.
Wow. So I, I want to talk about animals. You're coming, you're in Ames today, and you're going to be talking about pets tonight. What are you hoping to communicate to people? Well, the first thing I'm going to talk about is an animal lives in a sensory-based world, not a word-based world. And uh, there's some new research at Cornell where they found out dogs have a big visual thinking circuit that goes into the from the nose until um, they can smell, make smell pictures. I'm also going to talk about things such as fear memories, that an animal might be afraid of something, like a white coat at a veterinary clinic, because that was associated with a bad experience. But then if you're doing fear-free and the white coat's associated with treats, that would be a good thing. But animal memories are specific. Um, you change the orientation of an object, like a children's play set, and the animal's only seen one side of it. That horse is going to think that place that's something new and it's rotated. And that might explain why it spooked at it. Mm. I also want to talk about novelty. New things are both scary and attractive. If I put a beach chair out in the middle of the pasture, all the cattle are going to come up to it. Now, if it's blowing in the wind, they're going to be afraid of it. Novelty is attractive if an animal can voluntarily approach and is scary if you suddenly shove it in their face. So those are some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight. I say get away from verbal language and you'll have a better time understanding all kinds of animals. I think about the fact that so many of the experiments um, that psychologists have done and, and individuals are doing this too, um, where they try to communicate with animals by teaching animals human language. I mean, we, we remember um, with Coco, the gorilla teaching yep, I her remember sign Coco, language, yep. of course. And there's a whole trend um, in social media where people are using buttons to allow their dogs I've to communicate. Yeah, through language. How do you feel about that? I mean, we're bridging the divide, well, but think, we're doing it on our well, terms. They, but we're, they're learning language. But I think if there's a button that means dog park, um, I think the dog is, you know, it was sensory based on uh, seeing the dog park when he pushes that button. He knows that different words are associated with different foods or different things. And then dolphins can learn, you know, things like uh, get the hoop first and then get the, you know, some other, the ball, let's say. Mm -hmm. They can learn that. But I think they visual, the, it's the memory stores it as a sensory based memory. And there's a dog named Chaser that knows the names for 200 toys. Yeah. It's incredible, um, but maybe not so incredible. I bet a lot of dogs are probably more capable than uh, than we give them a lot of credit for. But, you know, so many of us share our homes and our lives with pets, whether they're dogs, cats, horses, or other pets. If we open our minds and think about thinking more visually and, and with our different senses, what do you think we can learn about the animals that we love so much? Well, you need to look at it. It's a sensory-based world, and a lot of pets that people got during COVID are having problems because they didn't meet enough strange people. They didn't get out and do enough things. They were with their owners 24-7. Then when the owner has to go back to work, the dog has got separation distress. A lot of dogs today don't get exposed to enough new things, new people, new places. There's more problems with being afraid of the vet clinic. When I was a child, we'd take the dog in to get a vaccination. It was no big deal. The dogs were used to being touched by strange people. They're not getting out and doing enough things, going to enough different places. Um, they're leading almost too sheltered a life. But you want to introduce these things in a positive way. Puppies need to learn that toddlers are people too. And then that will 
help reduce problems with attacking a toddler when the dog grows up because you've got to know that toddlers are also our people. Uh, the puppies have to be taught that. You see, sensory-based memory is very specific. In the experiment we did with the horse with rotating a children's playset, when the slide was rotated, the children's slide, it looks totally different. You need to teach that horse all different sides of that object. It sounds like um, some of the things that we're seeing with dog behavior actually mirrors some of the things that we're seeing with human behavior as we become more addicted to our screens and, and less likely to go out and interact with other humans in in real life with... Um, you know, with our pets, of course, we love them so much and we'll do anything for them. But sometimes I feel like we're bad at understanding what their needs are. I mean, we're very good at feeding them, but we're not necessarily very good at making sure that they get enough exercise. What do you think are some of the needs exercise, that we need? Exercise, I would totally, totally agree they need to get a lot more exercise. But dogs don't get a chance to just socialize with other dogs. And uh, they want to go smell a tree and they just get yanked away from it. They don't get a chance to do any doggy social stuff. Yeah. And we've got more behavior problems than we've ever had. When I was a child back in the 50s, all the dogs ran around the neighborhood, and we didn't have uh, adult dogs chewing up houses and things like that. And they were much better socialized. Now, there were some safety issues there, but I think they actually had a better life. It feels like maybe we're bad at figuring out what they need. So do you feel like if if we spend time thinking, okay, how are they thinking? How are they interacting with the world that we can be better at, at understanding their needs? Well, I saw a fantastic dog park last year in Kansas City when I went to the Fetch Veterinary Conference. And I saw kids and dogs having such a good time playing with other dogs, playing with children, and the way they made this work, they had they had to have some very strict rules. The um, park provided the tennis balls. So that gets rid of resource guarding. Mm -hmm. No people food, no doggy food. Yes, they had a bar there. Cocktails were allowed. They also <laughs> had a very attentive staff. If too many dogs got together in a group, they kind of dispersed them. They cleaned up the dog poop um, instantly. And they also found that 10% of aggressive dogs they had to ban from the place. And they were having such a great time. And... I sat there for two hours watching kids and dogs having a great time, and there wasn't a phone in sight. Nice. I, I, it was really, really nice, but I want to caution. This dog park, to be good, has to be very, very well managed. Very well managed, or it would turn into a mess really quickly. Yeah. This way of of understanding or trying to understand how minds of neurodivergent humans or just humans who are not like you work differently in understanding how minds of animals work differently. That's a, a real exercise in empathy, which is a powerful thing for anybody to experience, I think. Well, I talk to a lot of corporations all the time. I've talked to computer companies, steel companies, airline companies, all kinds of companies. And I tell executives, you need these minds that are different, like to fix your airplane to keep your mill from falling apart. Now, when a student gets a label like autism, dyslexia, maybe ADHD, this is where you're likely to have a more extreme object visualizer. He's going to be the person or she's going to be the person super good at um, 
at fixing things or super good with animals. You might get an extreme mathematician. They'll be your top programmer. And you need these skills. And and then you get some that are very, very verbal. But the first step I tell executives is you need these different kinds of minds, you know, or your steel mill is going to fall apart. And I'm worried that if I went out and checked out their maintenance shop that it's turning gray. Mm. They're not getting replaced. They're playing video games in the basement instead of getting out and, and keeping a steel mill running or some other thing, keeping the power grid up, things that are really important. And it's hurting our culture in so many ways because the the people who think differently aren't being able or getting opportunities to realize their potential, and we're missing out on all that they contribute. Well, let's just talk about how to educate them. Uh, when I was a young kid, uh, my art ability was encouraged. I was encouraged to do all kinds of art. I would I loved tinkering with kites and tinkering with stuff. Too many kids today are afraid they're going to fail. I had a teacher ask me. I couldn't believe it. I was showing him a paper snowflake, and the teacher said, what's going to happen to a kid's self-esteem if the snowflake falls apart? I said, you get another piece of printer paper, and you try again. And then maybe you look it up on YouTube. And you'll and learn something. And then you something. take your mathematical kids. The thing uh, about the mathematical Temple kids Grandin, is they don't need to do it step by step. We are out of time. But thank you so much for sharing your mind and your ideas and opening so many minds. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and I think you'll like my book, Visual Thinking. Temple Grandin, she'll be speaking at Iowa State University tonight in the Great Hall of the Memorial Union at 7 p.m. The lecture is titled, Let's Talk About Pets. This is Talk of Iowa.